Pray with me. Lord Jesus, you are worthy. And therefore, we are here to praise you, to lift your name high, and Lord, even to receive from you. And so we pray, Jesus, that you would speak your word to us today. And any of my words which are not yours, may they blow, fall to the ground and blow away, Lord Jesus. But may your word remain, for only you have the words of life. And so it's to you we come. This we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning again. As I have been thinking and reflecting about what to preach in these days after Easter, especially in the midst of what's happening in our lives, in the life of our congregation, in the life of the world, I've been asking the Lord to just show me what we need to hear. What food from God's word do we need to nourish us in these days? And so this morning, what I believe the Lord is telling me is that we're going to look at the book of Philippians. We're going to begin a series here on that book. And what I believe is that the themes in this book are the things that God wants to speak to us in days such as this, specifically in our body here at Living Faith. As you know, the epistles in the New Testament, they are named after the recipients of those letters. So in the case of the book of Philippians... Paul is writing to the believers who live in the city of Philippi. Now, in Philippi, it's located in modern-day Greece, if you can picture that. I know some of you are more geographically oriented than others. can at least understand that it would be in modern-day Europe. It was established as a colony in 360 BC, and then it was named just four years later in 356 by Philip II of Macedon, who's the father of Alexander the Great. And evidently, he really enjoyed the sound of his own name, hence... Philippi as the name of this settlement. By the time of Paul, 400 years later, Philippi had become a very prominent city in the region of Macedonia. And that church in Philippi was actually planted by Paul himself. In fact, it was the very first church planted in Europe. We get an amazing picture of how the Philippian church was established when we read the book of Acts. It is so good to read that book of Acts in partnership with the, with the epistles of the New Testament. Particularly when we look at, at chapter 16 of the book of Acts, we see that Paul is on his second missionary journey around the Mediterranean, and it's somewhere between the years 49 and 51 AD. Paul's traveling with a guy named Silas, as well as Paul's new apprentice named Timothy, who he meets in the city of Lystra, which is in modern-day Turkey. And when Paul and Silas and Timothy leave Lystra, they decide they're going to head north towards the regions of Phrygia and Galatia, also in Turkey, in order to keep doing what God had called them to do, to preach the gospel, to plant more churches, to go where nobody else has taken the gospel before. And one night, there as they're traveling in Turkey, Paul has this vision of a Macedonian man who is pleading with Paul. And he keeps saying over and over again, come over to Macedonia and help us. Come over to Macedonia and help us. And after that vision, Paul rightfully understands it as a word from the Lord. And so Paul and Silas and Timothy, they immediately take the Lord up on it. They travel by sea and by land to the region of Macedonia in order to find out what God had for them to do and who God had for them to meet. 
And once they arrive there, they come to one of the major cities in the region called Philippi. And they end up staying there for several days as they try and figure out what God is calling them to do. And as it's fitting on the Sabbath, they look for a place to worship. And they go out and they actually leave the city walls and they go down to the river which runs next to that city of Philippi. And evidently that was a place where people would gather to pray on the Sabbath. And there, among a group of women, they meet a lady named Lydia, who's a merchant and whose favorite color happens to be purple. But more importantly, it turns out she's a worshiper of God. And the text in Acts chapter 16 says that in that moment that Lydia is talking with Paul, God opens her heart to hear what Paul is saying and sharing about Jesus. And hearing Paul's words, Lydia believes the gospel and she gets baptized. Her entire household gets baptized with her, perhaps in that very river they were standing next to. And in this conversion, two really important things take place. First of all, we have what is likely the very first convert on the continent of Europe. Just as Mary Magdalene and the women were the first to believe in the resurrection in Israel, so too here in Europe, women lead the way. And second of all, through Lydia's conversion and those in her household, the church at Philippi is born. Lydia and her household become Paul the church planter's core group. Soon after this, you might remember that Paul and Silas, they, in the town of Philippi, meet this slave girl who is demon-possessed and whose masters are using her demonic capabilities of fortune-telling to make a profit. And so in meeting this woman who is tormented and obviously being used and abused by the men who own her, Paul and Silas, they cast the demon out of her in the name of Jesus. And her owners are majorly ticked off at losing all this money that they would have made off of her, and so they, they end up getting Paul and Silas put into jail. And it's there in jail, if you'll remember, that Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns to God into the night. And in response to that praise, God miraculously sends an earthquake to open up the jail and to free Paul and Silas. And when the jailer, who's supposed to be paying attention and making sure that no one escapes, when he wakes up from sleep because of the earthquake... And when he sees that all the doors have burst open and all the shackles are open, he's so desperate because of his failure that he attempts suicide. But Paul and Silas, they cry out before he could harm himself, and they tell him, don't hurt yourself. We're all here. Nobody's gone anywhere. And when the jailer comes to his senses, he comes before Paul and Silas, and he falls on his knees, and he says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas, they preach the gospel to another Philippian man and he believes and he gets baptized he and his entire household and more brothers and sisters are added to the congregation there in that city these are some of the people Paul writes to to Lydia to the slave girl to the jailer and so many others whose stories of conversion we don't get to know it is so beautiful to me to stop and to consider the moment and the ways in which God saves people and brings together a family of faith. Every person here at Living Faith has a story like that of how they met Christ 
and of how of all the places in the world they ended up here in Tempe in this body of believers. And God is behind those stories. God works through the hands of ordinary people like Paul and Silas or our parents or our friends and our, our pastors to lead us to the faith and to bring us into a community in which we might be discipled to Jesus. Paul writes this letter to the Philippians about 60 AD, which is about 10 years after he planted that church and first visited the city. And the church there in Philippi was growing and maturing so well. In fact, this is perhaps one of the healthiest churches that Paul wrote to. And as a result, Paul has much to encourage them with. Philippians, the whole letter, it has this tone of joy and thanksgiving which permeates almost every verse. And you can hear it right in Paul's opening greeting. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is not shy about doting upon these believers, and his heart is overflowing with love for them, which makes this such a beautiful letter to read. But while Paul is incredibly encouraging throughout the letter, he makes it clear that his words of encouragement for them, they're not so that they might take his words as a reason to kick back and relax, as if they somehow have accomplished the purpose of their faith or the purpose that he planted that church in their midst. No, his, his overarching message to them throughout the letter is to keep living out their faith and service to Christ just as they have been doing. It's like when a baseball player steps up to the plate and he hits a, a beautiful line drive into left field and the ball, it goes all the way to the corner of the back wall and the side wall, which means that he has tons of time before the outfielder is going to get it. He knows he's going to get to second base at least and maybe third base if he's lucky. And as he rounds the first base, the coach there on the line, he yells to him, that a boy, great hit. And so hearing this, the player drops, stops dead in his tracks, and he turns around and he says, yeah, that was a great hit, wasn't it? And then he walks back to first base. No, that doesn't happen. No, the coach says, don't stop now, keep going. The encouragement that the coach is giving is meant to communicate confidence so that the player will keep doing what he is doing. There's going to be a time when he'll stop and rest and take his base, but not yet. In a similar way, Paul wants the Philippians to know how proud he is of them and how much he loves them and how grateful he is for them, but also that they should keep doing what they have been doing. And not let anyone or anything distract them from living out their faith in service to Jesus. And if the message of Philippians can be boiled down to just one line, that is truly it. We are called to keep living out our faith in service to Jesus Christ as we have been doing. And that's a calling which this church, Living Faith, is aptly named. Well, we come to this first passage, which we'll look at in this book of Philippians, chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. We read them today. We're going to focus just on verses 3 to 6 today. Let me encourage you, turn there in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. And let me read verses 3 and 4 right now. Paul writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, 
always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy. Well, I didn't mention it before, and so I need to mention it now. Where is Paul writing this letter from? He's in prison. Paul himself is in a jail in Rome. And I think we could all agree that that is not an ideal circumstance, is it? Now, I've never been to jail myself, and I know that's probably very comforting for you, but I have visited many jails. In my first few years as a pastor, I actually almost went every single week to a jail in Alabama to visit two individuals who were incarcerated there. And and just those visits, the, the 60 minutes I would spend in the jail a week, far more than enough exposure for jail for me. It's an awful place. I left there discouraged, depressed even. And yet this is where Paul is, in a jail with much less amenities than our modern jails. And he is there basically under a phony conviction. And despite these things, the very first thing out of Paul's mouth is thanksgiving. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Paul is practicing what he's been preaching. In the letter of 1 Thessalonians, which he wrote nearly 12 earlier, 12 years earlier to the church in Thessalonica, Paul tells them, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That has always struck me as so incredibly strange and, what is more, insanely difficult. It is God's will that we give thanks no matter what situation we find ourselves in. Really? Really? One of my mentors in seminary, Father Lyle Dorset, he told us in our, our church planting and evangelism course that, that every night as his head hits the pillow, he and his wife Mary would share 10 things they are thankful to God for that day. This is one of the most spiritual, prayerful, energetic 75-year-olds I have ever met. And if it were anyone but him who said this, I would have thought him to be a Pollyanna. And yet for Dr. Dorset, this was a spiritual discipline. And I'll never forget it. That, that will always stay with me. And here's the thing. I am such a novice at this. I am so good at seeing the problems. I am so good at seeing what I don't have and, and feeling entitled and missing the good things right in front of my face and I don't think I'm the only one with this problem. And certainly now, we all find ourselves in difficult situations. There's much fear and there's much anxiety and there's a general sense of negativity because we're all experiencing losses in so many different ways. And it's very, very, very difficult to give thanks when you feel that way. Truly, I believe we need to cultivate a heart of thanksgiving more so in times like these, even than when things are going well. And here's why. Because expressing gratitude to God is more importantly about what it does for us in our hearts and in our minds than anything else, perhaps. Oftentimes, simply recalling to our minds the things that God has blessed us with and thanking God for them, not just with our words, but in our time and in sacrifices of praise and in offerings, 
Doing that can change the course of our entire day, our entire week, our entire life. And as we'll see throughout this letter of Philippians, Paul has learned to give thanks in even the worst of circumstances. And maybe that's imprisonment. Maybe that's martyrdom. And as Paul expresses his gratitude here in the opening verses of this letter, what we see is that Paul's main cause for thanksgiving, what is it? It's the Philippians themselves. This book is very much like a love letter. And I don't mean of the romantic variety, but of the kind that happens between people with deep bonds of friendship. In the next, fi- next verse, verse 5, Paul expresses just exactly what he is so grateful for them about. He says, I'm grateful because of your partnership in the gospel from the very first day until now. It had been 10 or more years. In our fellowship hall here at Living Faith, there's this thing hanging on the wall, and it's called a yoke. It's the thing that a farmer uses to hook up two oxen together in order to get them to go in the same direction and to work together. And written on that yoke in the fellowship hall are Jesus' words, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Any of us who put our faith in Christ, Jesus calls into discipleship to him. And what that means is we are learning to be like him. We are learning to think and to feel and to do as Jesus does. And that's essentially what it means to be yoked to Jesus. In fact, ordinarily, whenever we are celebrating the sacraments in the Anglican tradition, I'll wear a priest stole around my neck. And what that is meant to represent is the yoke of Christ. I am yoked to Christ, but not just me. You are yoked to Christ. And we all being yoked to Christ, it is not just about us and Jesus. Sometimes we might like it to be just Jesus and me, but it's never that way. You see, in accepting Jesus' yoke, we are at the same time accepting being yoked to our fellow disciples in the way. Our brothers and sisters in the faith, the body of Christ, the church, we are all inseparably yoked together. And these Philippians, they understood that. And they had decided to yoke themselves to Paul, to to lock arms with him, as it were, in order to keep living out their faith in Christ. And it was because of that partnership, because of the mutual edification and the upbuilding and the encouragement They were captivated to reach their city for Christ. They were captivated to share the gospel in Philippi and even beyond. And that partnership in the gospel, it it translated into a number of different things. First of all, we see that the Philippians, they, they received Paul's teaching and authority. Paul had brought the gospel to them to begin with as one of Christ's apostles, and he thereby discipled them in the faith. And while this may not seem like an aspect of partnership, it is. As I preached just two months ago in February about bodybuilding from the book of Ephesians, Christ gifts leaders to equip believers for building up the body. This is a partnership of mutual edification for the upbuilding of the church. 
The second way they partnered with Paul is that they prayed for him. They were prayer partners. Paul in this letter is thanking God for them and praying for them. And on the other hand, he knows that they have been praying for him. Perhaps that jailer had committed to pray for Paul every night while on his shift, just as he remembered hearing Paul pray to God that night in a cell when Paul led him to Christ. Thirdly, they were living on mission alongside Paul. Just as Paul preached and discipled in Philippi, so these brothers and sisters ministered along with him. Paul was not responsible for leading every person in the Philippian church to Christ. What that means is that ordinary believers were sharing Jesus with their friends and neighbors and watching them come to faith and be baptized and join the fellowship. We'll learn later that this guy named Epaphroditus, just an ordinary brother, became someone who was so captivated by the gospel that he left Philippi and accompanied Paul on his missionary journeys throughout the region. The fourth way they partnered with Paul is that they gave financial support. We'll see in chapter 4, Paul writes, No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Only you, the church at Philippi. And thus Paul says, I am well supplied now, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent to me. Paul was generous to give to them of his resources, and likewise they gave to him, and that is a partnership. It's a partnership in the gospel. Perhaps Lydia, with her means and with her her resources, perhaps she became a monthly supporter of Paul's so that he might keep traveling and preaching the gospel and not have to spend so much time making tents to provide for his own needs. And the final way they partnered together was Now that Paul was in prison, 10 years after they met him, they continued to stand by him despite the stigma. In 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about how the apostles have been called to live and serve Christ. And I will tell you, it is nothing like the egocentric televangelists with their luxurious lifestyles. Instead, as Paul says in that letter, we have become and still are like the scum of the world, like the refuse of all things, in order that others may be lifted up. You see, there was very little that the Philippians could gain economically, socially, politically, whatever, for standing with Paul. If you name-dropped him, yeah, I'm with Paul, That would not get you very far. It may get you in prison. And yet they stood with him because they had a deep love for Jesus who Paul was imitating. Perhaps the formerly demon-possessed slave girl was Paul's most ardent supporter, having herself experienced what stigma was like. As I reflect on the last two and a half years here at Living Faith that I've been the rector, I I see so many signs of partnership in the gospel. I am so very grateful for the three different vestries that I've served with, and each of them has been a true partner for the sake of Jesus here at Living Faith. 
I am so grateful for our ministry directors who partner with me in our crucial ministries here at the church. I am so deeply grateful for our partnership with Bishop Asiel and Pastor Daniel in Rwanda as we each strive for the gospel in our different contexts. And yet, what I really want to do today is express my gratitude for what has happened just in the last month amidst this pandemic. And let me give you a few examples. First of all, we have 103 households active here at Living Faith. In March, I created a pastoral care groups in which I assigned six to eight households to each of our pastoral care team and vestry members, and they are staying connected with people despite being isolated. They are calling to encourage and to pray with you. I am so grateful for their partnership in the gospel. Second of all, our, our small group leaders continue to lead and care for our small groups, all of which have transitioned to gatherings via Zoom. And they've done so with eagerness, without complaining, even though there are many challenges to virtual small groups. And I'm so thankful for these small group leaders and their partnership. I'm so thankful to God that our small groups began in January and allowed us to get some momentum before all of this happened in March. Our small group ministry is so incredibly important right now for continued relationships and continued discipleship. I'm so grateful. Thirdly, you all have generously continued to give of your resources and tithes and offerings to living faith. Our offering last week was nearly double what our weekly need is, which means we are now more than $1,000 ahead of our budget goals year to date. And that's amidst a pandemic. That's amidst a global economic downturn. And what that means is it allows living faith to stay healthy and to plan for a strong future and even more to contribute to the needs in our congregation and in our community. I'm so incredibly grateful for your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And finally, I believe that this season, it's, it's going to help us get better at communicating with one another, which in turn will give us a deeper sense of community and togetherness. And I think that is essential to a true and meaningful partnership. We may be miles apart and unable to see each other, unable to touch each other, but we are still yoked together in the ministry of the gospel. And each of you, each of you is and can be a partner in the gospel in some way. And for that, I am so grateful. As we will read through this letter to the Philippians together, we're going to see a kind of relationship and partnership that is truly compelling. There is a genuine warmth and intimacy and a friendship that they have with one another. And we have the privilege of reading these words of love between brothers and sisters in Christ, of, of getting a peek at what genuine and lasting relationship and partnership is like, and indeed of asking Jesus to continue to shape living faith in such a way. The last verse we will look at today is verse 6, where Paul says, I am sure of this, that he 
who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. As Paul, no doubt in his mind, is reflecting upon uh, his relationship with these people and picturing the people he loves in this church at Philippi, as he reflects upon their faithful partnership, Paul can see the signs of God's work in their lives. Not just as individuals, but as a corporate community. And in seeing that, Paul wants them to be encouraged. He wants them to know that the fact that God is at work in their lives now, it gives him great confidence that God will continue to work in them to the end. You see, Jesus is not like me, who opens a book and then leaves it unread. Jesus doesn't set goals and then fail to keep them. Jesus doesn't start building a house and as soon as the economy tanks, leaves it unfinished. Jesus doesn't make promises and then as soon as we let him down, break them. No, that is not what Jesus does. Jesus does what he sets out to do. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion when Jesus calls you. When Jesus calls us, he is faithful to the end. Christ is with us. Amen. I don't know if you feel that or know that, but Christ is with us. And Christ will see us through. Hold on to that. Don't lose hope. Christ is with us. And Christ will see us through. My prayer for myself, my prayer for you as individuals, and my prayer for us as a corporate body is that in this season, however long it lasts, is that our relationships may grow deeper. And that what we share together in partnership and in grace will serve to strengthen our bonds for the season of life and ministry which comes next. God can do that. God has brought us together in this partnership and we are still yoked for the gospel. Let us not lose heart. Christ is with us and Christ will see us through. Amen.